0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we spend the hour with Dutch Marxist anthropologist Don Kalb, who has participated in and analyzed the transition politics of the former Soviet bloc. We speak to him about the state of Putin's war against Ukraine, and the crucial historical, political, economic, and social background of all of the actors, not just Russia and Ukraine, but NATO, the U.S., U.K., Germany, and France, even China, so that we can get a comprehensive analysis of the moment we are in, the relationships between and within the worlds now in motion, and the directions he sees as this war unfolds, changing the world from this moment forward. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Don Kalb with us for the first time. He is in Antwerp and he's an expert on Central and Eastern Europe. I'll get back to who he is and what he is, but we're going to be talking. About the war in Ukraine, we're now in what is day 10, as we record this, of Putin's war on Ukraine. And we can point to several important takeaways already. One is that everything has changed. And this war really marks the end of an historical period, I think, and the beginning of another in process of becoming. Everything that Putin has railed against and said he wanted to prevent He has precipitated by his actions with his decision to go to war with Ukraine. So, Ukrainians have been divided by region, age, language, and history, and now are united against Russia. NATO, the Cold War alliance that lost its raison d'etre with the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, yet persisted because, as we know, bureaucracies find a way to keep going. And now it has gained and come together in ways not seen in decades, with even the majority of the populations of Finland and Sweden now indicating that they want membership And Russians have come out into the streets to protest Putin's war in at least 40 cities facing stiff repression. Ukraine has resisted and captured the sympathy of the world, losing the perception of an economic basket case with rotating corrupt leaders. Zelensky has emerged as the modern Churchill, uniting the besieged country. This is a former comedian and TV star. And someone who even won the Ukrainian version of Dancing with the Stars. And there's so much to discuss. And we are really fortunate to have Don Kalb currently, as I said, in Antwerp with us to help understand the relationships between and within the worlds now in motion and the directions he sees as this war unfolds. And as I said, changing the world. Don Kalb is a leading Marxist anthropologist, a longtime student of and participant in the transition politics of Central and Eastern Europe and of post socialism more generally. He's a professor at the University of Bergen in Norway and the founder of Focal, F-O-C-A-A-L, a -A a journal of global and historical anthropology and Focal blog, a left-wing anthropology forum. And I should just say that it is Don Kalb's article in that blog, which let's see if I can find a way to give you the title. It's F-Off versus Humiliation The perverse logic toward wars in Europe's East that he posted on the first of March that occasioned my interest in everything that Don has to say. So, with all of that, welcome to the show.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Susie. Fantastic introduction. (laughs) Thank you. So,
0: like, let's just start because I think there's so many ways to go here, but maybe we could begin with a kind of encapsulation or concise description of where things are today, (laughs) 10 days in?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very important moment right now. Uh, So Russians are coming in from three sides. They have about 90% of all the soldiers that they were preparing at the borders. They have them in the country now. They're going very slow. They've only occupied Kherson at the moment, sitting south, basically on the way from Crimea to Odessa. Kharkiv is still not occupied, even though it's been bombed. Mariupol has been bombed, uh, artillery, but has not been occupied. With 90% of the soldiers there, I think it's becoming clear that Russia might occupy the country after a lot of fighting, and that is probably going to take quite a long time. Difficult to say. Two months, three months, four months? I have no idea but it will never be able to hold it with the numbers that they have. And that is probably also the background, two reasons for that, the background for Putin's considering to declare martial law in Russia. I find all of this, of course, a very, very troubling development because at the moment that martial law is declared, Putin's theory that this is a special military operation cannot be held. And in other words, there is absolutely no way back for Putin. I am not so certain about his personality that I can say whether Putin is a guy who can deal with that sort of a situation.
0: He I guess you're make, asking, in a way, is he Stalin? Because this was going to be the last question yeah. I was going to ask you about in terms of his calculation. But but go ahead and just give us more of this overview, and then I'll get specific.
1: Yeah, right. So, and of course, the financial sanctions, and in particular the block on the reserves of the central bank, are. Going to be really, really effective, and and I think we're all surprised about that. But you know, clearly Putin is in a corner. Of course, we like him to be there. It's also with, with all of us, as you said, this sort of you know this unification of a liberal democratic world around NATO and, uh, and against Russia is happening. Celebrating Zelensky, and you know the, the way we think about Ukraine now is, of course, completely distorted. But anyhow. It has become a sort of a beacon of Western values, which, of course, it is not. But nevertheless, I think we are getting in an ever more dangerous situation. It's also clear that what is it, the logistical lines of the Russian armies are being attacked again from behind, that will, of course, continue to be the case, certainly if, if weapons are, keep flowing in via Lviv and Poland. So that is the situation. There's also a new element there, and that is perhaps one, that is more hopeful than all of this, because I'm becoming quite skeptical about the Western craze to arm the current Ukrainian state and then perhaps even arm a resistance. I think it's also very dangerous to do that. I mean, it will, of course, cause a lot of deaths, but it's also geopolitically dangerous because Putin can declare that we are actually waging war to him. Perhaps we might not want to do that. Uh, But what is hopeful is the emerging civil protests. And Kershaw was a really great example of that. Today, where hundreds of people uh, were coming together. So Kershaw's now been occupied for three days. There was a large demonstration in the center of town. Hundreds of people, they were climbing on tanks. It was very clear that the Russian soldiers had no idea how to deal with this. People were lying on the ground before a big column. The column stopped. There's a whole set of videos of that in Twitter. So that is starting, and it, it will spread. That is going to have a military meaning over time, mm. and right? And not just a moral meaning. And it will sort of, it will color the reception of the Russian armies uh, probably everywhere from now on. So, yeah, I guess well, me, that is inspiring. Let
0: me ask you a couple of questions to take us back and then to move forward again, because I do want to get a lot more clarity on these intertwining dynamics that you've just introduced, but first to step back for a second to say that almost all of the specialists on the region, myself included, got this wrong. I suppose that's because we were thinking that it would be so irrational for Putin to take this step, and we just assumed that he would not, that somehow he would come to the brink after massing all the troops, and then something would happen, and he would back down. But instead, it seems to me the only quarters that got it right was intelligence from the U.S. that was being put out there every day. And even as they were saying, no, he's going to invade, I was still thinking, no, he's not. You know, And so were so many others. So Putin did the unthinkable And we were all wrong. And so the question, of course, that you started to address, Don Calvin, that I want to pick up on is why and why now? And just to give that tiny backdrop, which I know you will do, is that the conflict between Donetsk and Luhansk, the breakaway republics that Putin recognized, their conflict with Ukraine has been going on for eight years And there have been 14,000 deaths and something like 2 million of the residents leaving either for Russia or Ukraine. So, you know, some people are saying, well, Putin could have intervened at any time during those eight years and did not. So just why? Why now? And in your article, you go into a lot of different aspects of it. Maybe this would be the time just to get your opinion on that.
1: Yeah, well, it's okay. I was wrong myself. Right, so um, I also thought that Putin was having a sort of very rational strategy at this point in time in order to force Ukraine to accept well, either the secession of the two republics or, in any case, Minsk too, Right, I write in the article that, that both Russia and Ukraine becoming ever more these neo nationalist. Antagonist actors over time, and then we should, of course, talk about that because there's nothing, of course, inherently that must put Russia against Ukraine and the other way around. But over the last, well, you can say over the last 30 years, uh, but it has certainly been accelerating since uh, so basically since the financial crisis. In fact, these have become very antagonistic, new nationalist actors that see each other as their prime problem in the world. Now, Minsk, II was basically dictated by Angela Merkel. Both of them, I mean Russia and Ukraine, were temperamentally inclined to sabotage the whole process. Now, the West has certainly not taken Ukraine on the lease and told them to negotiate in good faith there, right? There's always been the split between the continental powers of France and Germany, on the one hand, and then the UK and the US, on the other hand, that were much more interested in NATO and actual promise of NATO since 2008 to integrate Ukraine. And so, as long as Ukraine was imagining that it would be a NATO member, it had no incentive to actually negotiate with Russia in the Minsk II format. And so, so this is the background to this. I actually thought that Putin was now at the point where he was going to tell us, well, look, Tell the Ukrainians to negotiate and we're going to fix this. On our terms, of course, right? But those terms were, you know, I mean, for Ukraine in a way, perhaps a solution, right? So they had no positive vision. Neither of the two governments after 2014, after Maidan, had a positive vision of what to do with Luhansk and Donetsk and the Donbass. So I thought, Ukraine might basically accept that this is a lost case. Perhaps they might, and the West might also accept that Crimea will never be given back. And then we're not going to wage war for that either. So, you know, that could solve everything. That would have been the rational way to go. I wrote an article uh, early February with uh, Volodymyr shenko from Ukraine, who's a good friend, a colleague of mine, in a Dutch newspaper, basically saying this, right? So it's either... War or Minsk too.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: well, clearly, we hadn't reckoned with Putin, and you know Putin has gone insane in the last two years. When I say that, I actually mean that because I do think that it is absolutely insane what is happening. There's, there cannot be any gain in this for nobody. and of course it's a, it's a dramatic dramatic risk and danger that he is taking here.
0: Can I just come in on that just before you go to why now? And that is to agree with you on everything you've just said, including how deranged Putin seems. And it seems that this is somewhat exacerbated by the pandemic and isolation and his germophobia. And you see these meetings where he's 40 feet away from the people that he's talking to. And it's almost like a king on his throne, but it's also, you know, maybe it's Howard Hughes and his germophobia. It is just it doesn't look sane. And then even his revision, his speeches that have become increasingly irrational, his revision of history, his understanding of all of it. There's all of that. Okay, so then, you know, you want to go into why now. And that, of course, leads me to ask, too, about the rest of his entourage going along with him or being frightened to oppose him?
1: Well, the why now question has very much to do, I think, with, well, first of all, with Afghanistan, right? The way the U.S. left Afghanistan and and created mayhem for its allies and created, you know, very, very serious divisions within NATO certainly
0: played a role in the timing. Then probably... So do you mean that in terms of U.S. showing weakness?
1: Yeah, we weakness is the outcome, but, you know, this sort of self-obsessed, narrow, self-interested behavior of the U.S., uh, just Mm -hmm. rushing away from Afghanistan, leaving it all to be grabbed by the Taliban, leaving even a lot of military equipment to the Taliban, and then abandoning its allies and the coordination of it all. I think Putin must have thought, well, if they do it like that, uh, I'm not too afraid anymore. That's that's certainly one element there. Then the other element is probably the the quitting of them. of Angela Merkel. He probably thought that with Germany in a sort of transition phase, with a left in power, that has always been closely aligned with Russia, much more than the CDU, right? And uh, so he probably thought that the EU uh, would be federated too. And then of course there was China. And his meeting um, in Beijing on the Winter Games, and he could coordinate with Xi. And there's, there's no way that they have not spoken about this. Mm. Of course, China later officially declared that, well, they didn't deny that they had spoken about it, but they declared that there was no backing, no official backing uh, by China. Fine, we don't know. All of this is secret. But, but those three... Uh, but it seems
0: to me that that's probably not the case, the China yeah. certainly likes its policy of non-intervention, but Putin, I don't think, would have gone forward without at least some backing for China in terms of suffering economically from sanctions.
1: Yes, I don't know. Yes, absolutely, 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 and also, of yeah. course, this is interesting for China in this sort of you know the imperial competition that is uh, that is accelerating now, just to see how the West is reacting to a situation like this, right? And so is learning a lot about the potential division but also potential unity and ideological developments the policy choices being made and certainly what is happening now with with the financial measures uh, this is certainly something that china will register and think about of course also the unexpected uh, to i think most of us quick unity within the west which is probably both both good and bad yeah, so those three things are, are very important. But then again, I mean, there is also an escalation, has been an escalation going on on the part of NATO, and that is totally underreported. If I am not mistaken, NATO and Ukraine, in spring of 2020, 2020 NATO designated Ukraine as a partner, an official partner. Uh, there was a new step. And it was for Putin the occasion to mobilize the whole army around the borders, as we know. Okay, he didn't have 200,000 soldiers, but he had 100,000 soldiers. He put all his equipment there. And after a while, they left. Well, nobody in the West seemed to have picked this up, Hmm. right? There was a little bit of a mobilization on the part of the Biden administration. There were some nice words, and then the Russians left their positions again. But it was, of course, a very alarming situation. It was an alarming answer, and very visible, too, to this agreement between NATO and and Ukraine. So, yeah, it is a gradually escalating situation where Ukraine and NATO have become ever closer. Of course, after the Maidan, and with the making of the post-Maidan, Ukraine state, because it's not just a new government, it's in many ways a new state, that immediately concluded a new constitution, there's an official line that the new state will become a member of NATO.
0: Yeah, this is really important. I just want to say because, you know, we know that for certainly almost everybody from the time of 1997, when Kennan, the father of containment, wrote that incredible editorial in the New York Times saying that expansion of NATO to Russia's former republics and near abroad is the single worst foreign policy blunder In 50 years, which included pretty eventful years and pretty eventful things. So that was gigantic. And then Jack Matlock, the ambassador, repeated that. And then even I think, as you say, Thomas Friedman or others have said that he also came out with that. So there was universal sort of or not universal, but there was a lot of understanding that this was wrong. And especially at a time. And I think you say this, Don Calvin, your article that, you know, Russia emerging from the Soviet Union very much wanted to be a junior partner to the United States, and in fact, hinted that they wanted to be in the common European home and in the EU and perhaps even within NATO. So you go into this and I want us to go into that. But I also wanted, uh, because you just said some pretty important things about Ukraine now and how it's changed since the Maidan revolution. And just to go back so that our listeners really know what happened then, and then perhaps we can go back into, I really would like for us to go over what has happened in Russia from Yeltsin to Putin to now, that will give us some backdrop there. Because what you've done so far is introduce these really important divisions in Europe and in the world. But later on, we need to go inside Russia as well (laughs) to look at what's happening. So maybe start with Ukraine, Maidan, and its own changes.
1: Yeah. Okay. The Maidan was a, we probably all remember, but just as a a very quick summary, the Maidan was a a massive mobilization uh, starting early December 2013 in Kiev with local Maidans uh, and other places in in Ukraine going on which mobilized against Yanukovych, uh, the president, who had been negotiating with both Moscow and with Brussels about association agreements, right? Now, the proposal from Brussels was appealing to him, but he knew that it would be pretty bad for the east of Ukraine, for the Donbass, because... The Donbass was still in many ways working for the Russian uh, military-industrial complex. There's an overproduction of steel anyhow in Europe and all of that. And the Donbass would certainly be a dying, deindustrializing area, which it had not been until then, not to the extent that you could have expected. Now, he had his roots in the Donbass, and his political uh, balance was basically there. He was also talking to Putin. Now, Putin didn't come so much with a very uh, interesting proposal either, so he was, he was actually trying to have both agreements at the same time. And this is a very important moment. Russia was not necessarily against that. Skeptical, but not necessarily against it. And, and as far as I know, Putin had never forbidden it. And as far as I know, history writing about this moment. But Barroso... So the head of, of the EU, at that point in time, forbade it. And there is, um, in Luc Vermittler's book on Europe, he's a Dutch author, but it's translated in English. So Vermittler uh, makes a lot of that moment, and rightly so. So Yanukovych knew at that moment that things would be going wrong for him in Ukraine because there was such a strong in the West in particular, but also in Kiev, such a strong feeling that they were going to be associated with NATO and being part of the EU and getting all the visas because they also don't forget it. Until then, it was for Ukrainians not even so easy to work in the EU or study in the EU, et cetera. And certainly Kiev, um, but also Lviv, were placed with a long of young students. They were a little bit like Serbia earlier, just locked in their country. They couldn't partake in, in all of that. And so Europe was an incredibly powerful symbol for them, understandably so. Now, Okay, so you get this massive mobilization going on, which in the first instance was called the Mm Euro-Maidan. But then very soon after, the students were already sort of kicked out of the Maidan Square by security forces. And that is the moment where the mobilized right comes in. And also basically from the area around Lviv, Lviv, has always been an economic bastard case since 1992. And certainly the the wider area around Lviv is an area that has a a strong positive memory of a fascist resistance against the Soviet Union in the beginning of... the. Okay, so this is an area that was, until 1939, was Polish. Mm. Uh, Before 1918, uh, Habsburg Empire. There is the Russian Revolution. There's a retreating Habsburg Empire. So you have, like in, in, in the Baltics, you have the, you know, the Freikorps, and you have the Habsburgs playing into the Freikorps. They are not called Freikorps there, but, you know, you have already these fascist elements going on uh, against the revolution. And that memory was then sort of mobilized again in 1939 with the uh, ribbentrop molotov Pact. Russia coming in, fascist resistance against him, then fascist alliance with the Germans who come in the middle later. Uh, and then from 1944 to 1949, quite an impressive, certainly in the first years, quite an impressive guerrilla uh, in the west of uh, of Ukraine. Now, the west of Ukraine has never forgotten this and see them as heroes of the nation. Around 2010, financial crisis, things going very badly in western Ukraine. It's a little bit like the Polish story. It's a little bit like the Hungarian story. It's part of the worldwide mobilization of illiberal right-wing, neo-nationalist forces. But in anyhow, they are winning in the West. And when the Maidan emerges, they move to the Maidan. There are already rebellions against the police forces in the West of, uh, of Ukraine. They bring weapons into the Maidan. And that ultimately leads to a, to, you know, a, a very strong sort of paramilitary playoff.
0: I think it was, I, I spoke to... The, Sorry. I spoke to uh, Vladimir Ischenko at the time, and, you know, he did some really outstanding work at trying to understand what had happened precisely in the Maidan. And I think you just said it very well, Don Kelb, with more historical background. But it was sort of the way that the more organized forces of the far right outflanked the inexperienced, let's say, mobilization of younger people and others. In the Maidan yeah. and were quickly pushed aside and it changed the character. And in fact, if you look at, you know, I'm getting emails from my friends in Russia, most of whom are totally opposed, but one or two of them still talk about that you have to denazify and, and you know, get rid of these Ukrainian fascists and- It always stuck. And it's really one other aspect of it is to try to understand why this region did what it did. There was also the memory of Stalin's artificial famine in Ukraine in the 30s, in which four to seven million people died in Ukraine and in the Volga region. And, you know, no forgiveness. And when they looked at, you know, the question during the Second World War of either Hitler or Stalin, so many of those people chose Hitler. And then, of course, he put them in camps too because he doesn't like Slavs. So, was, yeah. this was yeah. a population that was just battered, you could say. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. take it up yeah. from there.
1: Yeah. No, I totally agree with that reading. Yeah. You know, of course, I don't want to feed at all the Russian pent up story about denazification and all of that. Right. right. So, so, I'm also not saying that, that Ukraine is a fascist state. Far from no. that. You cannot right. say that. But, but what is very clear. That the Western right wing and I, I really call them neo-nationalist. I'm not so interested in the fascist concept here,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but the neo-nationalism of Galicia, which did celebrate some fascist heroes, was then sort of officialized in the new post-Maidan state. And of course, they were also, you know, the post-Maidan state was a combination of a bunch of new liberals around Yatsenyuk, basically chosen by the US, and these paramilitary elements that came from the right, and so. So let us say the security elements in the new state were certainly in the beginning, well, perhaps not dominated, but it was a a strong new nationalist right-wing influence in that. It has never entirely disappeared, right? And so so Russia is certainly not right to talk about fascist state and about uh, de-Nazification and all of this. But it is true that Ukraine set itself up as a state that, saw Russia as its prime enemy from the very beginning, saw Russian speakers as a fifth column in the nation, uh, had no positive vision for them. By the way, it's not only about Russian, right? It's also about the other languages spoken in Ukraine, like, like Hungarian, for example, and Polish, a bit of Ukrainian in the, in the, in the Southwest. Uh, all of them are, from the moment that the Maidan becomes a new state, lose their constitutional protections, So, yeah, so here you have a new nationalizing state in action. As I said, I mean, Minsk II could have been a solution for it. I mean, it would have produced a much more homogeneous and much more pro-nationalizing state than the state that it inherited in 2014 after the Maidan.
0: And if we Um, go forward to, say, the election of 2019, when Zelensky came in and, you know, the the West, (laughs) well, under Trump, basically used... Ukraine is a location to dig up dirt on Biden and nothing else. On the other hand, you hear much less of this kleptocratic regime, the alternation of either a pro-Russian kleptocratic class or a pro democratic class without the ordinary Ukrainians ever being taken into account. But Zelensky seems to represent... What is he still considered a neoliberal, but at least somebody more interested in getting rid of corruption? How does that take it forward? I guess.
1: Yeah, Zelensky is a terribly interesting figure. I mean, so for for, for years before he became president, he was playing president on television. It was a super popular show, so he was very well trained to be president for the people, (laughs) right? And then his party is, of course, also called uh, servant of the people and so on. So here you have a real. Liberal populists forming a government. Look, at no moment in the post nineteen ninety two history of Ukraine has there been a government that has been re-elected. Right, so these IMF regimes under which Ukraine has always worked were always unpopular, and so there would always come a new new government in. Now it is very clear that that there was a lot of hope connected to Zelensky, and as we all know, Zelensky is Jewish. It was, of course, also very multicultural. And he was certainly not part of any openly neoliberal or openly neo nationalist circles. I think that was a good start. He also, I think, made in the beginning quite, a, quite an earnest effort to talk to the Russians about Minsk, too. He certainly wanted to dynamize it. But there's a couple of important moments that happened in the aftermath of his first effort to do so, uh, including uh, one of his special envoys to Moscow preparing talks about his coming back to Kiev and being accused of high treason because of the, you know, the mobilizing right-wing forces behind him. And so it was very clear to Putin, I think, that from that moment onwards, that the post-Maidan state was not really in a position to negotiate with him about Minsk II. There was no vision in my eyes of a positive outcome of that. And so so all the hope was really on NATO and winning the the areas back at some point. So in that sense, I think the Zelensky government also inevitably made a couple of terrible errors. And I'm sure that Zelensky, looking back at that, knows that those would have been the moments in which he could have prevented this terrible war to happen.
0: So this brings me to to turn to Russia a bit too, because we asked why now, and you've given a really good explanation that you know I haven't heard elsewhere in terms of that precise moment in the post-Maidan government. But then you go also in terms of what the financial crisis of 2008-9 did to Russia. And so we see the first mobilization in 2011 and 12, and that was put down, and, and Putin becomes increasingly dictatorial and then did a very unpopular pension reform, whereas, you know, the cronies around him, including Putin himself, got more and more wealthy. There was more and more austerity imposed on the population and a declining standard of living. And so um, maybe you could take up that aspect of it to try to understand a little bit more, at least in terms of the domestic pressure on Putin that would have motivated this. And, you know, of course, yeah, what we're yeah. both saying, I think, is a miscalculation.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think it's very interesting to realize we talk about these, these events as, as local historical events, but we shouldn't perhaps see this as locally as, as you know, historians often tend to do. Or, or I'm an anthropologist, anthropologists are like that even more. Because, you know, the 2013 mobilization in Kiev and the 2000, 11, 12 mobilization in the Russian big cities are, in my eyes, both part of what I call the worldwide mobilizations, like Occupy Wall Street, like Tyre Square, uh, the south of Europe, etc. And so, uh, the, which were reactions to, well, to a lot of things, but, but without the financial crisis, it might not have happened in this particular way. We shouldn't go into detail there but the financial crisis is in its different and differentiating effects over global space a necessary background to this. But then, so you have things going on that have sort of similar roots in Russia and in Ukraine. Now, in Russia, you have... a. Your massive mobilizations going on. And again, they were not so well reported because the West so, was so concerned with its own mobilizations and, uh, and political balances at the time. But you have these, these urban mobilizations going on in Russia that become really, really big by the end of December 2011 and go on. And it's all against the electoral win of Putin, who is uh, accused of fraud. And Putin mobilizes at that moment a repertoire that he had not tapped into to that extent and with that serious intensity before. And so this is a very important moment. So there th- emerges after Maidan, a new Ukrainian post-Maidan state. You cannot say the same for Russia. That is, there's, of course, more state, much more state continuity, but there's certainly a new Putin regime after the mm-hmm. 2011 mobilizations. And it's very important to see that. That regime embraces tsarism the orthodox church and it mobilizes uh, the common workers from the dying mono-industrial towns against the degenerate creative classes of the big cities right and putin knows very well that that is where he can get his majorities from and they will also stand for him and he actually drives them with buses in, into the big cities to protest against the creative classes because they understood themselves as creators. but you have this i was in in russia in those days and I was telling my friends, I mean, why do you call each other creative classes, whereas Putin cannot talk about the working classes against the
0: creative classes? It's sort of like right? Brezhnev, so, during the Brezhnev period, too, where the intelligentsia felt it was sandwiched between the deep sea below of the working class and the regime above. But go exactly. ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so these are fateful, fateful divisions. So this was, of course, also badly played. But it's the same sort of divisions. Mm-hmm. That Trump mobilizes, that, that Urban mobilizes, that the Poles have mobilized, the same thing that happened behind Brexit. So you see a lot of world history happening here in specific local forms, but there is a pattern in it, right? Yeah, so that turn by Putin against the mobilized creative classes in the big cities, that changes the whole regime of Putin. And that that brings him where he is. And that also brings him at the point where it becomes very essential for him as a new kind of emergent Tsar over all the Slavic speakers, or in any case, the Russian-speaking Slavs, to be heavily concerned about Ukraine, a Ukraine that is setting itself up after Maidan as an anti-Russian force, having no idea what to do with Russian speakers and seeing them as a fifth column, writing a constitution against them, and then, of course, writing a constitution at the same time that will bring NATO in. And uh, so, so you see a set of things happening here that create a logic that can only end badly.
0: This is really good. <laughs> this is really interesting because, you know, what you've done is to show the sort of a change in Russia. And then at the same time, as you mentioned about electoral fraud, Putin always enjoyed a lot of popularity In the first instance, because he was the anti-Yeltsin. And so he started paying wages again, living standards rose as the economy became much more dependent on gas and oil revenues. And then he didn't need to cheat on his elections, but he did anyway, from all the reports that I get, but he didn't need to pad it very much. So he would pad it maybe 10% or something. But now, and this is something that I just became more aware of, is that how much he's losing in all the different regions you know, massively. And so completely overturning those elections. And then at the same time, as you said, becoming increasingly trying to be like the emerging czar and cracking down. And so this leads to, you know, whether or not all of this important backdrop, do you think it played into his decision to go against, to act against Ukraine now, even thinking that this might galvanized support. If, but the odd part there is if you're going to galvanize support, you might have a campaign first to mobilize support. And he didn't do any of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, you throw up a couple of great dilemmas there. So he has been tinkering with the pension system. He has not been very generous at all since, since 2012. He's been building up this financial war chest in the central bank and with the wealth fund clearly he had an eye on something else than consolidating his uh, his electoral base. And that else might well be this. I mean, so there might be much longer sort of vision there. He, of course, saw after the financial crisis that if you don't build up these reserves in dollars and, and, and hold them, of course, in the West, largely, uh, because that's also so interesting, that's why he's so vulnerable now. He also saw that if you don't have that, that in a financial crisis... You cannot defend yourself at all. So it is, let us say, the increasing turbulence and crisis proneness of the Western system that has certainly helped to set up Putin as a a very sort of self-defensive force. And then you have these mobilizations and so on. So it's, it's a thing that works on various levels at the same time. Yeah, he's been losing electoral support. It's very clear that, uh, that people are certainly not satisfied. I mean, so many groups are not satisfied. I hear very few people who are satisfied, in fact. I'm not even sure that he still has the support of the, of the old mono-industrial towns. But, of course, he remains the person who brought stability and a certain level of security. Uh, so I guess that is still something where he can tap a lot of goodwill from. Nevertheless, I mean, when you look at Ukraine and Russia, Of course, Ukraine doesn't have a Putin, and that's precisely why it's as corrupt as it is. Even Of course, Russia is also very corrupt, but in a much more organized way. Also, why it's so divided as it is, and so on. There was no way for Ukraine ever to develop a Putin, because, you know, when you you get into Kremlin in 1999, and the Kremlin has this whole imperial apparatus, you can take it over, you can work with it, and so you become a new Tsar. But, Mm. of course, that was never the case in the borderlands called Ukraine. Now, but the interesting thing is, of course, that the economy is not that different, except that, that Russia, well, under Putin, certainly until about the financial crisis, had, you know, fast economic growth, had the oil income, and so on. And so it, it, it did stabilize, let's say, working class, uh, social reproduction at a higher level evil, even than uh, the late Soviet Union. So in that sense, Putin actually brought progress uh, to a lot of people's welfare. It wasn't much, but it was something. That never happened in Ukraine, but at the same time, so Ukraine is the only post Soviet state that never attained again the 1992 level of of GDP. That's an important thing, but at the same time, uh, we don't exactly know what it means, given that Ukraine is such a divided state that the central capacity, the central fiscal capacity to bring in taxes is simply impeded, right? And so, whereas in, in Moscow, this is in place, in Kiev, it never got restored after 1992. And so my sense is that, yeah, a GDP lower than in 1992, I don't think that is realistic. I think there's a lot of black money going on and there's an enormous gray economy. And so there's also, I think, a certain progression in welfare, certainly uh, after 2003 or something. But of course, not as much as as Poland or or Hungary or or Romania or basically all the rest of post-socialism and post-Sovietism. But the interesting thing is, of course, that both states, I don't know the exact figures for for Ukraine, but my impression is that both states are at the top in terms of billionaire wealth, right? (laughs) And of course, we call it oligarch wealth in both cases, but Russia is certainly at the top in terms of billionaire wealth as compared to national wealth. Almost all of that money flows out of the country. That's another way in which the West, of course, is implicated in these regimes. So you have these billionaire classes that extract labor and revenue from impoverished working classes. They, sh- they immediately export their liquidity in the capital into, into London, into Switzerland, into all sorts of places. And very little of it gets reinvested and so on and so on. Ukraine is exactly the same. So you have your two neo-nationalizing states that are absorbed with their own nationalism, that have no left-wing traditions left in both cases, completely destroyed after the Soviet experience, and that are among the top billionaire places on Earth, top corrupt places on Earth, and that are now sort of, you know, rifling with each other, yeah.
0: So one thing that you bring out there, Don Kalb, is what I see as the kind of silver lining, if we can talk about it in that way, and that is that uh, this action has mobilized an anti-war movement in Russia that, you know, does so at great risk. We've seen statements from scientists and musicians and even generals warning against this. And, you know, the slogan is no war. I saw a wonderful picture of a pensioner on the Moscow metro um, looking very, you know, grim, but wearing the colors of Ukraine. And that was her sort of silent protest. And and what you're seeing is, you know, that this is uh, we don't have polls but that it seems to be a very unpopular move in Russia itself. That's an unexpected good thing to come out of it, that there's some mobilized protest against Putin and what he's doing. And then on the other hand, you've just described something else that's incredibly interesting, and that is that the interests of the population in both Russia and Ukraine seem to be the same, and yet they're divided by nationalisms. And we talked in the beginning, and maybe it's sort of a way to to go back there to talk about what the possible outcome of this war is. It looks, you know, nobody expected the level of uh, Ukrainian resistance and the way that it's mobilized the international population to stand with Ukraine. And on the other hand, Putin didn't prepare his troops And you had all these young conscripts who thought they were going for a training and instead got thrust into war. I have some really funny stories that, you know, I've seen where a tank was stopped by a traffic cop in, uh, I think it was in Mariupol and it might have been in Kherson. And the tank just stopped because, you know, that's what you usually do when you get to a red light. But this is not what you do in wartime. And or today there's one story of a tank In I think it's Kharkiv, but I'm not sure. Again, it's a Russian tank, but it's got a Ukrainian flag coming out of the hole. So you've got the Russian troops going in are not facing, you know, are not welcomed. In fact, they're hated. And it's probably very difficult for them to do this, you know, on the one hand. But on the other hand, they are doing this. And even though it looked like that, you know, the winds were with Ukraine in the beginning, now it looks a little different and, and it looks pretty grim. And in terms internationally, you mentioned something really interesting about Germany post Merkel, that uh, this upsets the plans or the normal trajectory, let's say, of German alliance or bilateral trade with Russia. And in the United States, it's had the effect of Biden not putting forward now, not talking so much about his Build Back Better so in war times, it's always about the war, you know. And it's, so it has a general rightward drift, is what I'm trying to say internationally. So you know, like I just asked you a big, huge question, and that's to tie all these things together internationally and locally, if you can, in in terms of what we think might be next.
1: Okay, let's first talk about Putin's war aims, because well, I so I think we should actually take everything that Putin has said about this seriously, right? And so. He wants to occupy Ukraine. He wants to install a new government that is pro-Russia. He wants to denazify it, whatever it is. It's a very worrying term. He wants NATO to withdraw its hot tools from the east of NATO, right? Now, if we take this seriously, then Putin has an enormous problem. Because with the two hundred thousand soldiers that he has, and as I said, now about ninety thousand are now in Ukraine, he's never going to hold this country. He may be able to kick off the head of the state; those things are possible. And you know, Europe. the US knows everything about it, right? You can kick off a head of a state. Well, the US is actually much better at it than the Russians are. That's also clear. Even though this would must have been a relatively easy thing to do, I mean, purely militarily speaking, but. Okay, so they're, they're fucking up. If they want to the hold the, the whole country, I'm not a military specialist, but you know I'm reading my stuff like you do, and I think they might need at least 500,000 soldiers, but probably no, eight, nine, a million, because this is a huge country, right? And the whole country is, is, is really not very likely to accept everything they do there. Occupy it not, rule it not, Put in a, a new regime, not And so they are in very very big trouble militarily. I don't know how Putin is going to deal with that. He might, you know, as as insane as many of us you and I think he has become over time, and, and certainly under COVID. And you know, we've seen the, the absurd examples of that. I mean, even Macron, after the five hours talk with him, comes out and says, "Well, you know, this is this guy is not okay." That was, for me, a very alarming moment, even though at that point I I still thought, okay, Macron and Scholz are bringing him to a point where he wants to negotiate. It becomes reasonable, but clearly that was not going on. Now, anyhow, I think it should be conceivable that, first of all, he will accuse NATO of being an involved war partner of the Ukraine that he tries to be. So, meaning that he doubles down. He might occupy, and I think that is quite likely actually, if he goes all the way, occupies the whole of Ukraine, but is still in a sort of war situation. He might occupy Moldova. That should be very easy, or in any case, Transnistria, right? So that should also be a settled case then. I, I don't see why, in particular, the latter he wouldn't do. But then he will certainly continue to seek. Well, you know, conflict with NATO, very uh, openly and dangerously. And we've seen how loosely he plays with the rhetoric of the nuclear uh, forces. So that is not a very happy perspective. So the the minimal thing, I think, what comes out of this is that both Putin and the West have invested now so much in threatening each other that it will become very, very difficult in the, let's say, in the next years, uh, but it might be also the next 20 years to not be in a pretty dangerous type of uh, hot-cold war. That is what probably will come out of this. Uh, But, of course, something much worse can come out. And we will not talk about the one worse uh, scenario, which which is open war between NATO and and Russia, which is, I think, not an impossibility at the moment that he cannot control Ukraine. For Putin, there doesn't seem to be a way back at this moment. Certainly, if he has to mobilize... A million soldiers. These, it becomes almost a sort of late first World War situation where where soldiers will be walking back, uh, armed and all, into Russia. Right, and we all know how the Russian Revolution worked. Mm. Uh, something like that is, is certainly not unimaginable. He probably knows that, but he probably also dis- doesn't want to know it. Mm. And then, of course, in, uh, what is also possible is a is, is Stauffenberg type of moment, 1944, the, uh, the elite commanders of the Junkers of the Russian army trying to kill Hitler. Something like that might also happen. What comes out of that is also not clear. And it's also, of course, very dangerous. Yeah. So I think this is the situation we are in. What I would like to see, and of course, this is completely utopian, mm. is much greater investment on the part of the Ukrainian resistance, on civil resistance, on peace marches, internationally organized. You know, let let there be this whole column of 60 kilometers that is now before Kiev. Let there be 50,000 people sitting on the road and let there be 10,000 West Europeans and 10,000 Americans be sitting there too and 10,000 Russians. Right. And if you organize it like this, I think you have a real chance in sort of channeling this out of a war situation. But the way we are now investing ourselves, both from Russia, from Ukraine and from NATO and digging in and, you know, piling up and doubling down is a terribly dangerous process. And I don't think it will end well.
0: Well, from your mouth to whosoever ears around the world that can organize this, and I see that Navalny did a 12-part tweet yesterday, basically saying the same thing from his jail sale, that every day, everyone around the world has to you know, start to mobilize to create this worldwide anti-war or peace movement, as you said. And, and Don Kelp, I can't thank you enough for this really comprehensive look. Uh, The possibilities of the situation, there were just two little tiny things I wanted to bring in. One is that I think Putin would have a very hard time installing a pro-Russian government at this stage, at least from within Ukraine, even those forces before who were pro-Putin, those puppets, they would be hard to find. And then, yeah, uh, yeah, so that's really hard. And then the other side is something I also thought about, but have no idea how it could come about, would be that all the forces within Russia, and especially in his inner circle, would somehow find a way to get Putin out. And that's, that looks increasingly impossible, at least without yeah. the kind of mobilization that you're saying. So short of yeah. that, I think that your solution, not, a, I don't think it's utopian. I think it's realizable, but it has to be organized. So maybe that's where we should end it because it's a positive note. And I can't thank you enough for joining us today and taking the time late at night for you. I've been speaking with Don Calbys, a leading Marxist anthropologist and a long-time student and participant in the transition, I almost always want to say so-called transition, of politics in Central and Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet order. And he's a professor at the University of Bergen in Norway. And most, I guess, crucially, he's the editor of Focal, that's F-O-C-A-A-L. It's a journal of global and historical anthropology and the blog, which you can find online, where there's a forum discussing all of this. And it is Don's article that first alerted me that, oh, yeah, we can't. We have to talk to Don Kalb to get some kind of comprehensive clarity, which you have so wonderfully provided. So I can't thank you enough for joining us today, Don.
1: Seriously, I cannot thank you enough. It was was a great conversation. And and, and, we agree. We
0: agree. You and I agree.
1: That's a good start. (laughs) Very
0: good. Thank you again.